Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. I have never had Indian food before I met Nisarg, and we went to his house one time last December. His mom laid out like the most amazing spread of food I think I've ever Yeah, but had. that was like real Indian food. Oh, I know. Indian really? mom made it. Oh, right? I know, but it, it yep. made a very good first impression. I will say that. <laughs> yep, yep. I don't so, think I heard Taylor talk during the meal. Hi, everyone. It's Todd Fredericks. Dr. Todd Fredericks, uh, uh, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We have a, in, I think it's going to be a really good interview today, and um, I'll let Nisarg take it away. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Rotations. Uh, my name is Nisarg Bakshi, second-year medical student at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, and we're joined today with Dr. Divya Singh, uh, joining us all the way from the West Coast. Uh, so we're excited to have her on, uh, talking about her decision to actually leave uh, her practice and, and pursue other uh, avenues within medicine. So we're excited to talk to you about that, Dr. Singh. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, and, and we also have a couple of our special people off the street, as we have uh, on, on rotations. We have Kevin Lee, one of my classmates, and Taylor Kowalczyk, another one of my classmates. So thank you guys for joining us. Both on time, I would add. <laughs> Early. Yeah. Yes. We're getting better, aren't we? We're getting yeah. better. Yeah. Good for third-year rotations, especially with surgeons. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Singh, uh, tell us about what got you uh, interested in medicine. I actually uh, had a rather circuitous, circuitous route. Um, I was an English major in college, believe it or not, and uh, actually ended up getting a master's in English. Um, and and I really fought that notion that I have to be a doctor. And um, so I ended up studying English, which was my great love, um, went on to graduate school, realized I didn't really want to be a, a, an English professor, um, and I wasn't... Um, totally passionate about um, studying further English criticism. So I, I quit, and I moved out to San Francisco. Uh, and this was during the time that HIV was becoming an epidemic. Early um, 80s then, Divya, right? Late 80s. Late 80s, uh, okay. It had started, but, you know, it, we, they didn't really know what it was. And so it was late mm -hmm. 80s. Um, I, I was doing volunteer work, which is something I've always been passionate about doing, and I was working with AIDS patients. And at that AIDS was really a death sentence. No one survived AIDS. Um, so what I was doing was providing care for AIDS patients that were too sick to take care of themselves, but not sick enough to be hospitalized. So I was doing basically practical things, because remember, I, I didn't really have any medical training at this point. So um, I was providing them with uh, home care, doing their groceries, their laundry, taking care of their cats, things like that. Um, and at the same time, it got got kind of interested in the idea of, of what is this virus? What is it that's killing these people? And so I started studying uh, immunology over at uh, Berkeley, just sort of an extension type course. But it was a very fledgling field at the time, but it was super fascinating. Um, and at the same time, I was just sort of trying to figure out what the next step in my life was. I was doing a lot of interviewing, informational interviewing. I was doing some temp work, working at various jobs. And initially, I thought I would do something using my English background, whether in marketing or corporate communications or publishing or whatever. And nothing was really inciting my passion, uh, apart from the stuff that I was doing with these patients and the study of immunology that I was doing. And so, as often happens, I just happened to be reading, at the time, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, which is a study about uh, TB in a sanatorium in um, Switzerland. And it's a novel about these people, and it's about the decay, the moral decay of Europe, blah, blah, blah. But it's also very much a book about personal illness 
disease, death, how one lives one's life, right? And so I started thinking about, okay, what do you want from the rest of your life? And mind you, I'm like 21 at the time. So, um, but I wanted to think about what would get me passionate, what would challenge me intellectually, and where could I feel like I was doing something useful with my life? Because even at that time, I really wanted to do something meaningful. And it kind of clicked. And I remember the moment that I just sort of thought, wait a minute, I should be a doctor, right? Like this makes um, And so then, of course, since I had not taken a single science course in college, I had to go back, um, get all my pre-med um, courses, the pre, uh, organic chemistry and physics and all that. I did it in a year course at Bryn Mawr College, which has a post-bac pre-medical uh, course of st study. So in one year, I took all my pre-med courses. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an early admission at University of Rochester. Um, so I got in there and I didn't even have a, a gap year between, you know, I, I, I lived a year in San Francisco. I did my pre-med courses for a year and then I started med school the following fall. So that worked pretty well for me. Um, and in retrospect, I, I think it was the right decision because I felt like I had seen the world. I had done other things. I hadn't gone into medicine as a default. Um, it was something that I had really well thought out. Um, and that really sort of clicked with my my job priorities, my life priorities. So then I, I did medical school. And similar story in, at Rochester, I thought, oh, I'll probably go into family practice. There were no other doctors in my family. I didn't even know a lot of doctors. So I didn't know what a doctor really did um, on like a day-to-day -day basis. So I assumed I would be a family practice person. But during my rotations, and it wasn't until my fourth year rotations, that I did orthopedics. Um, <clears throat> should I keep going or do you want no, me to? No, you're doing great. Yeah. And in fact, I, once you're done, I have some thoughts about this. Keep going. So then I did, I was actually going to be going into OBGYN because early on I decided I was a surgeon at heart. I wanted a surgical uh, specialty. So of the six rotations I did uh, third year during my clinicals, I, I gravitated most towards OBGYN. And then fourth year I was doing an elective rotation in orthopedics. Um, and for me, I was one of those people who had just never even considered orthopedics because orthopods don't look like me, right? I mean, I thought it was for jocks and I was, but I had a fantastic rotation and I had great residents and they were really super supportive and encouraging. And they're like, you're good at this. This is what you should be doing. And the thing that I was really attracted to in ortho is just this great sense of fun. It was something that was fun to do. You could be up all night, taking care of trauma, but it was just the joy of it. And I, I really, was, I, I felt that when I was doing it. And so I thought, you know what, life is short, do what, what you enjoy doing. So I withdrew my applications for the OBGYN programs and then I applied to orthopedics. Now, because it was relatively late fourth year, I had to take an extra year to do that. Um, and I ended up doing a year of um, research in the ortho department and I supplemented it with income by doing some pathology. I was basically doing a surgical pathology internship. So, and that was another great year in terms of learning a lot about pathology. I did a lot of surgical path, uh, anatomic path, um, and then I did uh, some basic bench work uh, in the orthopedic department. And then I applied for residencies and I got in University of Rochester, uh, sorry, University of Massachusetts, um, did my residency there. Um, fifth, fourth year when you sort of decide if you're gonna do subspecialties. Um, I liked hand surgery. Again, I had great mentors in the hand department. Um, and I'm always someone who's always thinking about, okay, what in the future uh, will this look like? What will my career look like? And I recognize that, you know, when I'm 60 years old, I may not be able to do a total joint replacement, but mm. I can do hand surgery. Um, 
And it's something I enjoyed the intricacies of it, the complexities of it. You can deal with pediatrics. You can deal with older people, everything in between. There's some trauma. There's nerve. There's tendon. Um, tons of bone. You know, who doesn't love that? So, <laughs> uh, so then I became a hand surgeon. So I, I went on to do fellowship at University of, uh, oh, sorry, at Thomas Jefferson University, the Philadelphia Hand Center. Um, that was a year. And at that point, um, I was all my training, my last, you know, the, the last 15, 20 years of my life at that point had been on the East Coast and in, in cities generally. And I decided it was time for a change. I had a lot of friends who lived on the West Coast. So I was offered a position at um, in Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, uh, so I took it. It was... Uh, Hello? You're here. You guys We're here? good. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, so I started my own private practice in Corvallis. I lived in Corvallis. I worked in a town called Albany um, and working both as a general orthopedist and as a hand surgeon. They didn't have any hand in that area. Uh, they needed some general orthopedic coverage, so I did both. Um, I did that for four years, and I have to admit it was probably the best job I had because it was me. You know, I hired my staff. I set my schedule. Um, I, I learned a lot about billing and coding and uh, legal stuff and, and, you know, set up a practice, which was cool because we never learned in, in medical school or residency how to set up a business. Um, the downside was a lot of my patients didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I ended up um, doing a lot of self-pay patients and a lot of call because there wasn't a lot of help around. And also I was living in this really small community and I, I sort of felt like the need to be in a bigger place for a little while. So then I joined... After I left that practice, I joined an HMO at uh, in Bellevue, uh, Washington. It used to be called Group Health Permanente. Recently, it was bought, uh, merged with Kaiser, so it's basically Kaiser. Um, and I worked there for eight years, um, and that was a pretty good gig. But I was still doing general. And at some point, I, and, and I was doing as many hip fractures as wrist fractures, which, uh, as a hand surgeon, I felt like if I wanted to be a better hand surgeon, um, I needed to sort of focus on the hand surgery stuff. Hmm. So that recently a private practice group, um, physician-run, physician-owned, multi-specialty group. Um, and I was there for about three years, and that was the practice that I left. So, Divi, a couple points that you said. One, you sort of medical history, you were talking about immunology. And yeah. when, when I went to medical school, immunology, the textbook was about, you know, maybe a quarter of an inch thick, and now it's well over an inch and a half thick, right? I mean, there's been tremendous gains in the field of immunology in the last 20 years and what we understand about it. And that just shows you how quickly things change. And then the other thing I liked about your story, your background, was picking rotations. We, we've got this weird pathology among students. They say they have to do their audition rotation at some point in their third and fourth year. And I think your story illustrates that you're not grown up enough yet to know what you really want to do. You, you need to have that expansive um, experience to really find what you said was something that's fun, that's something I can look forward to doing every day and really enjoy. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think we, we're, we're channeling our students too early into things before they have a chance to really experience the good and the bad to make a life decision about a, a path of study. And then the, the final thing, I, so I don't forget, is uh, I love the fact that you mentioned no one gives anybody training in business. It's the only profession I know of where we have no idea how we make any money when we get out. Right. <laughs> you know, it makes no sense at all. And, and there's almost a little disdain for like, oh, I'm not going to deal with the money part. You know, I'm a doctor. This, that's not my thing. Right? My McMuffin cost five bucks this morning. I'm just saying, I had to have five bucks to eat breakfast, okay? <laughs> 
but but I mean it's important. You need to know how things work, right? And and that also helps you decide what kind of practice is going to work for you. And you know the money thing, fortunately for me, was not the priority. Um, I knew regard, and and this was true when I I chose the profession that I would be comfortable, that it would never. You know, I would be able to do what I wanted to do and be independent. Um, but it does make a difference if you're running a business, right? And, and there are patients who can't pay you, and that makes you make sort of decisions. And uh, I didn't want to get to the point where I made decisions about patient care based on people's ability to pay, um, which is hard, right? And, and so uh, that was one of the reasons I left my private practice. It was like, well, you know, I need to take care of people, but I can't not, and I can't not take care of people because they can't pay. Um, but on the other hand. I got to pay my mortgage, so. And we do want to talk a little bit about what were some of the factors that led to your decision to uh, leave your practice? Well, um, it, there was a lot of things. There wasn't one. Um, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know what's, what can work and what won't work. Um, and over the course of the, the 15 years that I've been in practice, uh, things have changed a lot. Um, there's more and more time spent on documentation and charting. Um, we had a very good EMR. It's called Epic. I don't know what you guys train with, but um, the 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 um, burden because to the physician to document everything, and because it's a somewhat complicated system, you also put in your orders, you also follow up on your labs, you do basically everything on the computer, and so hours are spent on the computer before you even see the patient because you're going through the chart, um, and then afterwards you have to document and and. There's a lot of regulations now with Medicare um, and insurance companies that you have to document everything. And you've heard about um, macro meaningful use. And, and it's just a lot of layers of um, work that needs to be after you've seen the patient um, that have nothing really to do with patient care, but just as a matter of uh, so that you can get, you can uh, code and bill appropriately mm -hmm. and get appropriately, which is really the bottom line. Um, so there's that. I found, and this has happened over the course of 15 years even more, there's a lot of pressure to see more patients, do it faster, um, more efficiently, uh, be very quick with your visits. Um, and that's not satisfying for the patient, not satisfying for me. It's not satisfying for anyone. I mean, no one's really happy. And as a, as a subspecialist, I need the time I need to not only understand the problem and come up with a treatment plan, but actually connect with them because I for a surgeon, so much of the patient outcome depends on my ability to have a good relationship with them. No one likes to be told, oh, you broke your wrist, I'm going to fix it, here you go, see you later, right? They need to understand what's happening because they need to get better, and I need to give them the tools to be able to get better, but I can't do that in a 10-minute visit. Um, so there was that, and I think that was probably for me one of the most frustrating is I was working harder, seeing more patients, and yet, yet feeling less connected to them. Um, <clears throat> I was in a group where, because it's a multi-specialty group, all the money, and it, it gets very complicated with the physician reimbursement model, but all the money goes into the pot. It's divvied up based on your collections, um, but it does get distributed to other groups, including the primary care. So the subspecialists who bring in more of the money get less of the pie, um, and then it's, and, but the hope is that this the primary care will refer you all the patients. Now, if they're referring outside the system and you're not getting the business and you're still working hard, then it gets kind of frustrating because you get less and less of the pie. Um, and there are these thresholds put for what the hand surgeon needs to be bringing in that are kind of unrealistic for a, a one-person hand surgeon in a private group where you're compared with someone at the university who's got 
you know, residents and fellows and five PAs working with them, their reimbursements are going to be a little bit different. So it, it, it got complicated, but the bottom line was I was working super hard and yet still not making as much money as I felt I should be getting. Um, again, not being poor, but just, you know, not, things were a little tight. But I think ultimately what made me quit, all these little things I, I like into paper cuts, right? No one of them is going to huh. kill you. But over time, when you're covered in blood going, what the hey? Um, I really wanted to do, and, and we can talk more about this later, my real passion was to do work in the developing world. And I had been lucky that I had spent some time, you know, doing two to three week blocks of work in, in countries in Africa. And I was allowed to do it. I had gotten in my contract that I could go away and, and do this work. But the problem is if, if I took any time off, I still had to pay my overhead. And not only did I not have to pay the overhead, I had to make up for the revenue that I was not going to be bringing in. So I had to pay extra money for every week I was gone. And so it became financially prohibitive for me to take off three, three weeks to go somewhere because I, I would just not have enough money to do it. And I thought, you know, I'm working super hard. I'm not making that much money. I'm not particularly enjoying this because most of my time is spent on the computer. Um, and I can't do what I want to do. So I, I often say that the only reason I work for money is so that I can work for free. Um, but if I can't do that, you know, what am I doing here? And I think I was just feeling super tired, too. Um, and, and when you're working in medicine full time with a full patient load, you really don't have time to figure out what's doing. You don't have time to think about what's important to me. What, where am I going with all this? Um, and you need time for that and you need energy. And I didn't have it. So I thought and I, I, I left the practice. I, I, my plan was not to leave medicine. It was just definitely to leave this practice because it's not working for me. And at this point, how long have you been away from that practice? A little over a year. A little over a year. And, and so do you think then this is a, a permanent departure from that practice? Or do you think that at some point you would go back? No. And, and they had initially suggested, you know, you, you can take a sabbatical or something like that. But I said, no, you know, I, I don't want the constraints of having to come back to this particular practice. So I permanently. Um, and I'm not looking into joining that practice again. And, you know, I've been in Seattle long enough to know there's no other practice in Seattle that I'm interested in joining. Um, but what it's given me is I have done other work and we can talk a little bit about that, that allows me more time to think about what I want to do, um, what works for me in medicine, and what doesn't work for me in medicine. Um, and, and I think also because I've had multiple uh, clinical experiences over the last 15 years, I understand a little bit about what medicine is in 2017 in America, right? I mean, I, I can't be a total idealist and say, well, this is the perfect job for me and go find it because I don't think it's really there. I think for any medical practice, you have to make some compromises and decide what works for you and what doesn't for you. You know, funny enough, right down the road from you is Pamela Weibel. You could drive to her in a few hours. She might hmm. disagree with you, Divya, about what? what the ideal practice is. Yeah. She's down well, in Eugene. And so... Yeah, she's right down there. Anyway, I, I do want to ask you, though, a year out, how do you feel now? A year away from uh, from the, the hamster wheel that you were on, how do you feel right now? I feel pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> you want, right? You want to, you know, but I sleep better than I've slept in years. I have a lot less stress. Um, I have, you know, I mean, there's some stresses and challenges, and we can talk about those later, but by and large... My life is pretty full. I feel pretty good about what I'm up to. Um, that being said, you know, I am still I am still doing work as a doctor. 
So it's it's not like I've completely left the practice. And I'm actually doing some locum tenens work, which I, you know, I've been doing for the last five months. So, um, but I feel good. I mean, it, it was a decision I had to make, and I'm very happy I made that decision. Yeah, we'd love to hear uh, more about you know the work that you're doing now. But before we we break onto that that segment of this episode, I wanted to give our panelists a chance to chime in if they had any questions or comments. Uh, they've been sitting here quietly for the interview, so I wanted to give them a chance to say something. What would your advice be to someone going into the field or getting interested in medicine for the first time, like to give them like more of a realistic expectation of this is you know more or less like what your day to day is going to be like versus you know, this idealized image of like what a doctor does. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of mentorship stuff. I do, um, especially with uh, young women. Um, but I talk to a lot of people about medicine and, and, you know, and I'm pretty honest about it. I said, if there, I say, if there's something else you can do, do it because medicine is hard. It just is right. And if there's nothing else you feel you can do, well, then there you are. But I think there's if you just want to take care of people, if you want to be in the healthcare professions, there's a lot of alternatives. I don't want to tell you that because you guys are all in med school. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like being a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, I think that that's going to be a huge thing in the future. Um, and I think that's a really good way of getting some of the best of medicine without getting a lot of the hassles of medicine. Um, I do tell people to keep an open mind, right? Because there are professions out there you don't even know exist yet. Um, and so I'm, it's, it's, I'm always surprised when someone tells me, though, I'm going to be a, you know, neuroscientist or I'm going to be, a, you know, OBGYN right from the get-go. Because I think maybe they were exposed to one person or one experience and that kind of shaped them, which is, you know, it's nice to have that sort of um, single-minded focus. But the fact is that there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and this may not be the thing for you just because you decide when you were 16 and you worked with a brain surgeon and thought, this is what I want to do. Maybe it's not the perfect job for you. Um, so I, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is just to stay open-minded, to try a lot of different rotations. And, and, you know, again, it's, it's like in college where people had their major and all they wanted to do was their major, but then they didn't study anything else. And that makes you a very narrow person. Um, but there's a lot of things out there that may you know, strike your fancy as well. So be open, listen to people, talk to people. I think there's something to be said about talking to the people in your specialist, uh, about your, in your specialties, you know, yet what, a, what kind of personality is attracted to that field and whether they're happy there, you know, and one person can't decide the whole profession, but if on, on the average that, oh, this group of people seem pretty unhappy versus this group of people who really seem to enjoy what they're doing. I mean, you should take that seriously. Um, and when a lot of people tell you don't go into this field, you kind of need to listen. See, this is the thing. I, you, were, you were almost apologetic there a few minutes ago, Dr. Singh. Um, I think we need to do more of this with med students because right now they have, the, they have the naivety of youth, and that will carry them through their education because they don't know what it's like to practice. I think it's contingent upon us as good mentors to say this is what you're going to face in the future, so be prepared for it. Enjoy your education now. Enjoy the learning. Enjoy what you're getting. But understand, over time, you're going to start feeling differently. And if we prepare them early... Then they're they're not they're not frightened or unaware or wondering what is wrong with me. I spend all this time. They understand that's a part of the process of being a physician, and I think we will create healthier doctors in the future if they have their eyes open and say, okay, this is kind of the normal progression. I know that at age forty five, I'm probably not going to be wanting clicking boxes all the time. Maybe I should be thinking about locum or talking about my contract and saying I want some options and outs if I feel that something's wrong. Because what people don't understand 
is the Center for, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare say that we're 95,000 doctors short in another 10 years. We, this is a seller's market. You cannot easily become a doctor, which means we are a rare commodity, which means we've lost track of who's really in charge here. We are the ones that control the strings. I get three job offers a day. Three a day come to my email saying, will you come work? So if we tell our medical students not to be arrogant about that, but understand you have options. And when people are telling you, no, you have to see more patients, or, and you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I need time off, we need to teach them how to say, look, dig in your heels a little bit, show a little bit of moxie and say, look, dude with the MBA, um, you didn't do what I did. Uh, you're not taking the liability. I need some time for myself. I need to go over to Haiti and work for a couple of months and get my head back in the game. Your job's to find someone else. My job's to be a good doctor for everybody. And I'm glad you're bringing that up. Don't ever apologize to teach these kids because these two guys right now have a different perspective than they did when they walked in this room about a senior doctor, a mentor telling them, be prepared for this. That's a good education. I'm really glad that you really brought this up because like looking from other classmates who have made up their mind. Like, I want to go to, like, OGYN. I want to, like, go into dermatology. I'm like, sometimes you feel envious that they know exactly what they want to do. But for my, my answer yeah. is always is, um, like, I want to wait until my third and fourth year, until my rotations to see why I really like, because I seriously have no idea. It feels like you're behind. If yeah. you're not, you yeah, know, I want to do this, which is exactly. crazy. Exactly. I think it's, like, the pressures from, like, all of no, your peers. No, and here's and the other well. thing. Um, you know, medical students, and, and you guys are all super young, so... Maybe it takes you an extra year to figure it out. Maybe yeah. you go in a lab for a year. Life is life is short, but a year is nothing, really. You know. Um, so do the things you want to do to figure this out, and don't feel pressure to do it. Because you know, when you're 50, that extra year is going to feel like nothing. Um, and right now, you're like, oh, I, I need to decide. I need to start making money. I need to get into residency, whatever. But but take the time because you're not going to get that time later unless you quit your job. In which case, you know, then you have. <laughs> But, yeah, and there's that perverse thing about medical school, right? I can tell you sitting on the selection committee that the, the pyramid of difference between you guys and qualifications is like this tall. I mean, th th there are some of those people that never miss a question, but they're not that far away from you guys in terms of capability. So every time I hear a student saying, well, one of my classmates said you have to do this to be successful, I'm like, how come you never came to my office hours? I'm the guy that's actually successful at this. You're dealing with another noob who just showed up at medical school telling you how to do medicine. We've been doing this for 20-some-odd years. You don't think we understand how this works? We, we, my office hours are quiet, except for Nasarga comes in and we have these violent <laughs> arguments. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that very few students take advantage of their mentors and show up and say, Doc, is this really true? I mean, does my fellow second year actually have the whole you know, unified field theory of medicine figured out so they can tell me exactly how I'm supposed to be here in my second year of medicine? school no they're crazy yeah you know you're in medical school so you're dealing with doctors who are in an academic practice right and so once you get out into private practice when you're the lone doc in your tiny little town it's a completely different ball game right or when you an HMO also a different ball game when you're not teaching when you're not working with residents um, so every practice is a little different and you don't know what your practice is gonna be and who knows in the you know, right now everything's Hospital run, physician. You know the hospitals own the, pay, the physicians, and they own the practice. That's, so that's right. Um, and I can't predict what's going to happen in five or ten years. They don't own I'm, you, though, Doctor Singh. No. <laughs> <laughs> you have become free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Singh. Uh, we'll we'll come back in in, uh, in the second part of this segment uh, to continue the conversation and, and talk a little bit more about what you're doing now. Now that you uh, now that you're free. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you to Kevin and Taylor for joining us uh, and asking questions as well. Uh, we'll see you guys next week.
Conversations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Thank you.